0: We take a break after yeah. this term? Yeah. So everybody. Uh, before we do our, our grand rounds, uh, before this is introduced, i uh, just do a quick service announcement. As you can see, we're splashing some slides up the alley. This year, um, I am the honorary co-chair. Um, My name is Eric Lansing from am on own clinical trial program in Hematology here. So I just want to remind you to uh, sign up for an event, and it's never too early to start fundraising. The main event is on July 8th, (coughs) where you can bike, row, walk, and golf. Um, The two-day event with the Proudy Ultimate starts on July 7th. And as a kickoff and as a sort of um, Proudy spirit pep rally, um, we're going to have a a party on um, April 4th. Which is Tuesday on Ruben's fourth floor. We'll be sixth floor? Sixth floor. I'm sorry. Sixth floor. That's my office. You'll come of my office. <laughs> um, Ruben's sixth floor, um, 4 to 7 p.m. There'll be um, food and drink um, and be merry, and you can sign up for uh, uh, teams then, but I prefer that you try and do that beforehand. There'll be door prizes and a lot of festive activities. So again, um, please support the Proudy. It's a
1: bit of our cancer center and I appreciate the support. Right. Hey. Well, I think you could
0: all hear that. And now I'll introduce a uh, neurofopediat to introduce the speaker. <laughs> How are you?
1: Hi, so um, welcome everyone in the room and those who are watching remotely. Uh, the following COI statement is issued by the Cancer Center. Dr. Herman has uh, had financial interests in the past year with grant and research support from Nucleotron and also served as a consultant with BTG, V, and Oncasil. Uh, Dr. Hartford, who is the course director for this CME activity, uh, has reviewed the relationships which have been resolved by validating the content of the pre- of the presentation. Um, Dr. Herman does not intend to discuss unlabeled or off-label use of FDA-approved products or non-FDA-approved investigational products in humans. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity, although he has, in fact, had to spend money after flying Cape Air who lost his luggage. (laughs) So we thank him for supporting our local businesses. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Herman, um, who completed his medical degree at the University of Maryland, his residency at the University of Michigan, uh, where he is currently the and he is currently a uh, professor of radiation oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, where he also serves as the a, as a director of clinical radiation oncology research. Um, he is a writing member of the NCCN and ACR guidelines on pancreas cancer. He serves on the board of PanCan, uh, which is a pancreas Cancer Action Network. He also uh, sits on the NIH Neuroendocrine and Pancreas Cancer Task Force. And he serves as the um, radiation oncology PI on the Alliance Borderline Receptible SBRT trial, which really is he is here to help Dartmouth get get running off the ground in the next few weeks. Um, Prior to MD Anderson, he spent 10 years at Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, where he was the founder and co-director of the Pancreas Multidisciplinary Clinic. Uh, It was there that I actually met Dr. Herman as a radiation oncology medical student and it was the inflection point in, in trying to choose a career and, and I still remember, I don't know if he remembers, when I asked him uh, why would someone go into radiation oncology and he said it's simple, uh, you get to cure cancer without having to cut people. No offense, <laughs> Dr. Barth. <laughs> um, and so as I rotated with him, I, I was really struck really by... Surgery. <laughs> I was struck by his optimism, his compassion, and his tenacity, all of which are essential traits for oncologists, and especially for those who care for pancreas cancer patients. Uh, So please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Herman. So I think he, he, set me up, uh, he
2: set me up in a way that I don't think I'm going to be able to uh, to meet the expectation. But it really is an honor to, to be here. Um, I actually uh, was here probably about eight years ago, more just on a social visit. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've been in the country. Um, and uh, today I got to meet a number of you. And um, it's really a, a pleasure to to work with you. I think I've already established some relationships that I think will will grow into some potential collaborations moving forward. Um, And I think uh, at the end of the day, the the thing I hope to to be able to achieve from today's talk is that when we're dealing with very, for all of the cancers we take care of, um, it's really a team effort. And if you work as an individual, you're only going to get so far. And I think also um, in the academic setting, our our role really is to educate the next group of folks to be able to make a difference, and I think if we're not doing that, um, then um, we're not doing what we should be doing. So, so with that, I think you know, I think a lot of what I'm going to talk about today really did stem from working in a multidisciplinary group. I learned a ton from the surgeons and the medical oncologists, nutritionists, nurses that we work with, and being on the front lines day to day and working together, you start asking questions, and then you get curious, and you start looking into these kinds of things, and a lot of this kind of stemmed from that um, and, and working as a group. So with that, um, again, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I will uh, jump in. So um, learning objective-wise, I'm going to talk a little bit about the current treatment options. I'm going to talk a lot about stereotactic radiation and surgery. And then, um, although it's not a radiation audience, I'll talk a little bit about how we approach um, stereotactic radiation for pancreatic cancer. Um, I guess the one thing that we did cut out, or I cut out, but um, a lot of the research that I'm going to talk about was also through donations um, from patients or patient families that provided additional support to to achieve a lot of this research, um, especially the Gonzalez Foundation, who's been very instrumental. Um, so the, the main problem with pancreas cancer is really location-location, and it's pretty similar. It's, it's pretty easy to see here that whether the tumor is in the head of the, of the pancreas, the body of the pancreas or the tail of the pancreas. Either way, it's in the very middle of our body. It's pretty much the hardest place to get to. Um, And the other thing is that from a radiation or a surgical perspective, all these things are in the way. So the vessels you can see, and this mouse isn't working very well, but um, you can see the, the vein and the artery here, um, and then you can also see the duodenum. And, and the, the take-home here is that we have to be very careful with, with whatever therapy we're giving um, in order to be able to get the tumor out without injuring the patient. The other part of this is we rely very heavily on imaging. And it's, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse in the same aspect. And, and the, the best way to think about it is when we talk about pancreatic cancer, rather than thinking of the typical TNM staging, we talk about it in a very straightforward way. It's resectable, meaning can it come out? It's what we call borderline resectable, which keeping it kind of straightforward is it's up to 180 degree involvement of the main arterial structures, which, is, which are primarily the superior mesenteric artery, or the SMA, and the celiac artery, or the celiac axis. And here's a good example of just outlining. You can see where the red arrow is. This is the SMA right here. And you can see this dark, hyperdense mass that's right up against it. And you could argue, uh, maybe just by a show of hands, real quick, just to kind of keep you interactive here, um, how many people think it's less than 180 degree involvement of that vessel based on what you're looking at? Let me see a show of hands if you think that the tumor is involving less than 180 degree involvement of the vessel. Nobody. OK, well. so how many more than 180 degrees i guess obviously everybody okay so but as you can see there's a very big difference between this one you can argue that some of the very skilled surgeons in this room, if you give some therapy, you could probably skeletonize or maybe still get that tumor out, or even a little bit of shrinkage could make that happen. In this case, you could see the tumor is completely encasing the vessel. So it'd be a deep dive to really get this out. I mean, you're going to have to go down, and it's, it's just realistically not possible. So this morning, we're talking about this a little bit. This is really what we call locally advanced or unresectable. And then this is borderline resectable, at least I'm going to call it borderline in this case, which is less than 180 degree involvement. But the real challenge is, what do we do with these patients in between? And the reason it's important is because if a patient gets a label in the beginning as being locally advanced, in the very beginning of the trajectory of their care, and it's done improperly, they become essentially palliative from day one and it doesn't change very often. So this is why multidisciplinary care is really important to have more than one set of eyes looking on these patients and making sure that they get put down the right path in the very beginning. For those that are interested, um, this is the long version of it, and this is kind of the definition of what is borderline resectable has changed over the years. And now this is the most updated based on the Alliance trial that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, which is a um, randomized trial for patients with borderline resectable disease. And these are the definitions of what it takes to be borderline. And again, because of time and everything else, I'm not going to go through the details, but the bottom line is less than 180 degree involvement of that vessel, of the the main vessels, the SMA and the uh, celiac constitute borderline. And then also, if there's a short segment occlusion of the vein that requires reconstruction or or essentially removal or replacement. However, an important point here is that it's based on, all the staging is based on really CT scan alone. Okay, So unlike other diseases like rectal cancer, you can scope, you can examine the patient. We're really relying on CT imaging for most of what we do. The other issue is that, as I talked about, there's a lot of structures that are close by. So for example, if this is the tumor right here, And then just showing this is the blood vessel that we're trying to sterilize this margin right here. In addition to that, we have the duodenum, which is a radiosensitive organ. So if we give a high dose of radiation to this area, we can cause an ulcer, we can cause um, obstruction, we can cause stenosis, we can cause all kinds of bad things. So in essence, what we're trying to do is what you see in this purple line is we want to give as high of a dose to the entire tumor that we can and also sterilize this margin. And this margin right here we call the tumor vessel interface. And, and because of this intimate association with the bowel right here, historically, we've been limited to the amount of radiation we can give. We can only give around 50 gray. And a gray is like kind of like a milligram of a medicine. It's a way we describe what we do. It's actually joules of energy deposited per kilogram of tissue. But the bottom line is it's based on density and it's based on absorbed dose that you can deliver. So the long and short of it is that you want to, again, you want to give a really high dose to this area, and you want to spare the duodenum as much as you can. So that being said, what's the data out there right now for what's the role of radiation in pancreatic cancer in general? And I'm gonna focus in the first part of the talk for just kind of the locally advanced disease, and that's that group where historically, they're not surgical. These are patients that we give chemotherapy, we give radiation. And we try to manage toxicity and nutrition. And then we just watch them and hope that they do OK. That's basically what we do at this point. So this is one of the largest trials that looked at the role of radiation. And this was for unresectable patients. They go to gemcitabine alone or gemcitabine pusarlatinib. Then if they, if they did not develop metastases, which actually about 40% of patients, unfortunately, did develop metastases before being randomized, they got randomized to radiation or, no, or, or continued chemotherapy. And you can see, kind of ignore their allotinib thing because it didn't seem to matter, but the idea is looking at radiation versus no radiation. And also in this case, the maintenance didn't seem to really make a difference with your allotinib. So if you look at these curves, it's pretty straightforward that you look at the curve and you say, well, it looks like radiation didn't really do anything. Um, so therefore, this has led to a lot of the oncologists, and I don't know if there's, i, I try trying to remember who's in the room, but um, you know, a lot of the oncologists across the country will say, well, there's no role for radiation in pancreatic cancer. However, I just want to stress a couple nuances. So again, only 60% of the patients that got enrolled actually made it to radiation. Okay, So that's important to stress that the chemotherapy wasn't very good. And then there was a significant benefit in local control. Well, local control is only gonna provide a survival benefit if you can control systemic disease, okay? So I think, you know, just to be devil's advocate here is that I think if we have better chemotherapy, like other diseases, perhaps the role of radiation could become more important. In addition to that, if you actually read through the article and read the fine print, you can see that out of 449 patients, 4% of patients actually were explored by a surgeon And out of the 11 patients, there were 2.5% had an R0 resection. But what's interesting is the median survival was 30 months for those patients that made it to surgery. Sure, you're selecting patients, but that's double of what the other patients had. So it starts making you think, well, maybe some of these patients aren't palliative. Maybe we should be more aggressive in some of these patients moving forward, but clearly we, we need you know, maybe some better therapies, and I'll, that's what we're gonna talk about now. So I look at it as, in a disease where, just to give you a little bit of background, for pancreatic cancer, the five-year survivorship for resected patients is 20%, and the overall survival is 4%, okay? And it's increasing. It's actually now the third greatest killer of all the cancers that we take care of and we manage. And, it's, and the incidence is increasing year by year, and we're seeing more and more younger patients. So it's, it's a really bad cancer. So I think we need to you know, roll up our sleeves and try to think how we can work together to improve the outcome of these patients. And I would argue that the surgeons have done about as good as they can do, but from a chemotherapy and radiation perspective, there's room for improvement. So what is the optimal chemotherapy regimen? So we talked about the gemcitabine and the nilotinib, really haven't been doing a whole lot. Well, since then, there's been two, very well, but there's been two big trials. One is looking at what's called Fulfirinox, which is 5-FU, arena T oxaliplatin. So it's a three-drug regimen. And that was compared to gemcitabine alone in metastatic disease. And actually, if you look at gemcitabine alone for metastatic disease, it's about six months. So this was almost a doubling in survival with this regimen in patients with metastatic disease. In addition, if you look at the other regimen, which is gemcitabine and nab-paclitaxel or braxine, that's a doublet therapy, that also showed a similar survival benefit when comparing to gemcitabine alone. So now, finally, after I started, so I started practicing um, at Hopkins back in 2005, all we had was 5-FU and gemcitabine. So at least now we have something else that we can give our patients and ideally help control the disease. And I think why this is so important is that as a surgeon or a radiation oncologist, we're both in the local control business. At the end of the day, if we can't control metastatic disease, there's really not much of a role for us to be definitive or potentially curative. Well, that sounds all that sounds fine and good, but what's the rationale? I mean, does it matter? Do we really need to give radiation? Why don't we just give chemo and surgery? Is there a rationale for giving more intense local therapy? Well, one is that, again, we've only gotten about 20% of patients to surgery. That's not enough if we think that's the only way to cure these patients. In addition, we published a study at Hopkins where we looked at autopsy patients. So we actually, you know, patients died and they were kind enough to donate their bodies to science. And we actually, Dr. Buzio, who's now at Sloan Kettering, amazing person, um, did a lot of research looking at patterns of failure. And what was really interesting is 30% of all the patients that died of pancreatic cancer died of local disease. Now, a lot of the medical oncologists were shocked by that because they all just assumed that everybody with pancreatic cancer died of metastatic disease. So again, that starts making us think, well, maybe there are select patients that we can actually cure if we can control their local disease. In addition to that, you can see that there's other data, like at MD Anderson, they found that 60% of patients actually had local progression only after chemotherapy. And you know, as we showed you earlier, location, location. If the tumor is growing and pushing on things like bowel, um, stomach, and other things, it can cause all these different problems of obstruction. Patients can't eat. They feel sick. They get bloated. Um, There's just not many things. And also, if they're sick, they can't get more chemo. So it's, it's sort of a vicious cycle. So there's been a lot of advancement in the field of radiation oncology. And it's been really cool for us. Because to give you a sense, this is what I was doing 11 years ago. This is a patient, and this you can see it kind of the outline here. This is after surgery. We would give adjuvant radiation or, or post-surgical radiation, and we would give about 30 days of radiation. And these poor people would fly into Hopkins, and they would stay at a hotel, and they'd come in every day for 15 minutes, and they'd then go back home. And we were giving concurrent gemcitabine. It made them sick. They didn't do very well. And you know it just wasn't a great treatment option. And then we had what's called IMRT or intensity modulated radiation therapy. The best way to think about this is larger mag lights or like, you know, the flashlights we had when we were kids that were able to modulate. You can change the beam as you're going around the body. And now we're able to make it much more conformal. And you can see here, you know, the very focused radiation, the colors are co- covering the tumor plus a small margin or the tumor bed but we're sparing all the areas out here, especially bowel. So all of a sudden, patients weren't getting as sick with radiation. So we're able to give a higher dose, give more focused radiation. Well, you guys probably don't know this, but when we breathe, our tumors move, or not tumors, hopefully we don't have tumors, but our pancreas can move about a centimeter or even a centimeter and a half when we breathe. So we realized if we're trying to get very focused radiation, we need to control the breathing. So we created, um, our our physicist, created what's called active breathing control, or breath hold devices, where they wear these little goggles and they can actually see, and I think I have some slides, um, where they can monitor their breathing, and they can take a deep breath and hold it. And it basically freezes the tumor in place so that we can hurry up and radiate and then let them breathe again. So it allows us to be really targeted. And then finally, we actually are putting fiducials. So our endoscopy um, folks are able, gastroenterologists are able to go in and put little gold seeds in the pancreas. And that allows us to target the radiation just like you do. Now I live in Texas, so it's actually kind of interesting. Um, A quick aside is, you know, I'm like, I'm the only one in my whole street that doesn't have a gun. So it's very interesting to me. In Maryland, um, everybody has guns except for <laughs> like in, around, around the city. We didn't have any guns in the burbs, but it's actually interesting in Texas. So anyway, it's the same idea in that you, know, you have target practice. If you have something that's staying in the same space and you can actually focus it, you're going to be more successful. So long and short of it is that this is what we're left with now. So you can see this is the tumor. And literally, we're putting around two to three millimeter margins around the tumor. Why is that important? That's important because dose matters. If we're going to try to sterilize a tumor or sterilize that margin so our surgeons can get the tumor out, and if we can't get a high enough dose in to sterilize that area, then there's a good chance it's going to come back or our surgeons aren't going to be able to get it all out effect- effectively. So, and what do they look like, by the way? This is, they look like a little piece of rice, so they're very tiny. They're made out of gold. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, we've had a couple of patients that have gone to surgery, and they want to keep them. So the surgeons actually pull them out, and um, one person made a necklace out of them. So I, I guess it was a it was success. I guess right? It was in there, and it was unresectable, and then it was able to come out. So it's something to celebrate. Um, the other part of this that's important is is you know, in radiation oncology, we're also very specific about physics. So if any of you are engineering majors, the idea there's a lot of opportunity, um, or physics majors. Um, What this is here is we contour every single structure that's near the pancreas and then we know down to like you know essentially a, a, a centigrade, we can tell you what the dose each structure is getting, at least in theory. So that allows us to create specific dose constraints. So as we have a trial, we can say, I only want the duodenum to get this amount of dose. And if it gets above that, we know the risk of toxicity of to that organ is going to be higher. So we became more scientific as radiation oncologists as opposed to just kind of saying, well, I hope I miss the bowel. So we're much more, much more specific. And then, as I mentioned before, the respiratory, respiratory control. Um, there's a lot of fiducials out there. This is more for the radiation oncologist, so I'll skip through those. So in the end, what we're left with is this. So this was actually the first patient I treated. I was scared to death. It was on a clinical trial. Um, he was 87 years old when I met him. Um, he was actually sent to hospice, um, but we have a trial that we treated patients with just gemcitabine alone in five days of radiation. He wanted to do it, um, and uh, I told him he has to go home and he has to get out of a wheelchair and eat enough before I'm going to treat him. His daughter took him home, gave him all these shakes, and got him stronger. He came in. We were able to enroll him on the trial. um, And uh, I have HIPAA approval for this, by the way, but this is his plan, and you can see the duodenum. Look how close the duodenum is, and this is why we have to be so exact, okay? It's very close. In addition, this is what we call dose volume histogram. This is the dose of radiation we deliver. This is the volume of each structure. And each one of these lines represents a structure. So the duodenum is in here, the spinal cord, the kidneys. And you can see a simple area under the curve. All these structures are getting lower doses, whereas the tumor, what we call the the planning treatment volume, is basically just the tumor plus a volume around it for error setup. And you can see that the tumor gets a much greater dose than uh, the normal structures. And as mentioned, this is the those constraints that we use to make sure that we don't hurt the patient ideally and helps make sure that as we deliver treatments in other centers like here, that you know, we're, we're kind of following the same paradigm as we treat these patients. So that sounds good. I mean, it's great that you have all these new toys and you have everything else, but what's the data? You know, what, what are the results out there, and, and should we be doing this for our patients? Well, a quick little historical perspective is that um, Albert Kuhn at Stanford got a new CyberKnife machine. And he only had time allocated on the machine to do one treatment. And he took a pretty bold approach. And he gave 25 gray times one dose. Um, And I mean, the good news is that it did control the tumor and 95% of the time. There was no growth and 95% of the time at one year. But unfortunately, 40% of the patients had duodenal ulcers or toxicity. Um, So clearly, that's a problem. So the idea was if we spread out the radiation over a longer period of time, we do it over five days, the bowel has a little bit of a chance to recover. And then as mentioned, we we instituted a lot of changes and improvements to make it a little bit better. Um, And as you can see, unlike breast cancer or prostate cancer, we have hundreds of patients or even thousands of patients. With with pancreas cancer, these are small numbers. So all of them are less than 100 patients. But at least it's some data to show you that The the survival appears to be around the same as what we give with five weeks of radiation. So with five weeks of radiation, roughly for locally advanced disease, the median survival is around 12 to 15 months. Okay, So with only five days, um, we're actually able to achieve around the same, if not slightly better, results than we would get with five weeks of radiation. And the toxicity now, as you can see, has dropped down dramatically. However, this was all retrospective data. And I I do believe that if you're going to do something, you should do it on a trial, ideally. So this was a trial um, with Stanford, Sloan Kettering, and and us. And this actually originated just by three of us meeting at a meeting and saying, let's try to do this. We did this with a donation from a patient. This was strictly a shoestring budget. And we all did our own central review before treating the patient. So it was a very low budget trial. Um, But long and short of it is we mimicked the 25 grade times one trial. And we did gem alone, and then five days of stereotactic radiation. And then patients would stay on gemcitabine um, for maintenance. And you could see that our primary endpoint was actually a toxicity rate of going from that 40% that you saw in the 25 grade times one down to 20%. So We just wanted to decrease it by 50%, which is a very straightforward goal. But then we had a lot of other secondary endpoints. We actually got PET-CT. We did quality of life analyses on these patients. And actually, when the fiducial was being put into the pancreas, we did multiple passes of, a fi- uh, of an FNA and made a cell block and actually sequenced that cell block. And we're now, writing, we're now getting that data. So, for this one small trial, we were able to get a lot of cool things out of it that I think will help us learn some things about these patients down the road. So, this was published a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, again, it's just gemcitabine plus five days of radiation. The median survival was, I think, a, a reasonable 13.9 months. Now, I would go to national meetings and they're like, well, this is no better than, radi- than standard radiation. It doesn't give you any real benefit. And my argument was, well, I mean, it's five days. There's no chemotherapy necessary, and the toxicity is almost nothing. I still believe it was a step in the right direction to demonstrate that it's, it's something we can offer our patients. But what about toxicity? Um, you can see that acute GI toxicity, as I mentioned this morning, most of my patients would go to a ball game that night. They, they felt well enough to go have a beer and a hot dog that night, so that's a huge improvement. And most of the grade three toxicity was actually the gemcitabine. I mean, very little toxicity from the radiation. However there were some late GI toxicities. So there were a couple patients that got, a GI, got an ulcer. What we found is that when the tumor was invading directly into the duodenum, the tumor would respond, and it would actually sometimes leave a void. It wouldn't have time enough to heal, and you can end up with a fistula, or it would bleed or an ulcer. So now, in our new trial, we actually exclude patients. If on endoscopy there's direct invasion of the tumor, We exclude those patients and recommend standard radiation because we're afraid it works too fast and it actually can cause problems. Or if you guys are ready to take them to surgery, well, okay, we can do it then. But we'd want to know that you're definitely going to take them to surgery because I want to avoid these toxicities. From a quality of life perspective, uh, scores were unchanged from pre and post-SPRT. And pain was improved by 50 to 60%. So it did improve pain for those who couldn't go to surgery. And interestingly, 10% of patients with truly locally advanced, again, this is that palliative paradigm, were able to go to surgery. And they all had margin and node negative resection. So it just goes to show that in select patients, it's beneficial. And again, brings up this idea of resecting patients with um, locally advanced disease, but only select patients. So that kind of led to our overall approach for treating these patients. Is this is our current approach, um, what was at Hopkins, and, and uh, it's not quite yet at MD Anderson, but I think we're getting to this direction, which is for borderline and locally advanced, we treat them very similarly with four to six months of chemotherapy. They generally will get a short course of radiation, and then if we can get them the surgery, we can, with or without um, electroporation or nano knife, as it's called. Um, we actually, the surgeons would actually do it intraoperatively. So if they went in and they couldn't get it out, they would do nano knife, and the theory would be that at least you're giving them, you know, a local a local uh, uh, sterilization if you can't take it out. And then the idea of maintenance chemotherapy, which is a whole other discussion. So. The one thing is that you know a lot of times patients would get their chemo, the radiation, and they would come to tumor board, and we'd look at it and say, it didn't shrink. It didn't pull away from that vessel, so I guess there's nothing we can do. And I think the take home is we've learned from a number of studies that, it, I think of it as, I kind of call it like the muffin phenomenon. Um, you can take a muffin and you put it in the oven, That's kind of a silly thing, but what, it makes sense to my patients. So you take a muffin, put it in the oven, okay? And it looks like a muffin, but if you don't cook it enough and you take it out, it's very gooey and you, it sticks to things. Okay? I almost think of it for the surgeons. That's kind of like what a non-radiated tumor is. It's kind of stuck to things. When you cook it enough, it actually, if you then touch it, it kind of crumbles away at your finger. And I kind of think of it the same way, that if you don't radiate before surgery, it can be more sticky and stick behind. If you radiate it, it becomes more fibrous. It doesn't change in size. It still looks like a muffin. It still looks like a tumor but more or less of it, it's going to be dead. And generally, these tumors tend to die from the outside in. The, the, the core is usually dead with necrotic. It's, it's, um, it's, it doesn't get much blood flow. The, the periphery tends to have more of the alive cells. So those are the areas that you are sterilizing, and those are the areas that you actually care about because of the vessel involved. So um, what about other centers? And you know, if you dig through the literature, you can find that there's a number of other studies at other sites like Moffitt and, and Harvard where they have taken some locally advanced patients to surgery after chemo, after radiation. And in these select patients, if you look at the literature, the median survival is around 30 months. So if you can get them through chemo, radiation, and surgery, you are doubling or even tripling the survival compared to those that don't make it to surgery. So if you're going to do this, how do you select these patients? And I'm not going to get too detailed, but this is just sort of the paradigm is in the event that they are quote unquote unresectable, um, then what you want to ask is, is the GDA involved? Meaning that that's the vessel that goes that you would actually rely on. If you're going to remove the celiac axis, you have to make sure that there is vessel flow to actually get to the other, um, the other organs. Um, and then also, is, if, is, are they a candidate for IRE? And in those cases, in, you know, the surgeons would sometimes go in and explore these patients. Um, is there treatment-related fibrosis? And one way to do this, you get a PET scan that can sometimes help you identify whether there's viable disease or dead tissue there. And also, there's varying degrees of locally advanced disease. So locally advanced disease potentially could mean resection after maximal neoadjuvant therapy. And then here's the way we just broke it down. We actually renamed locally advanced disease into a one, two, and a three. And the locally advanced three is really just those that typically are just not able to go to surgery. They're not surgical candidates. But for the locally advanced one and two, which were that in between those two events, where it's really locally advanced and not so much, those are those patients that we try to get to surgery. So what about the data? Um, So if you look at the 117 patients at at Hopkins between 2010 and 2015 that had truly locally advanced disease based on multidisciplinary involvement or or review um, and then got um, chemo and radiation followed by surgery, these are the results that I'm going to show you now. Um, the mic, there was a mix of chemo. Part of this is because patients with poor performance status tend to get more of the gemcitabine-based regimen. The good performance status patients tend to get Fulfirinox. Um, about 40% got at least four months of chemo prior to the SBRT. Um, and if you look at the overall group of patients, we now see a little bit better improvement in survival. So instead of being you know, 15 months, it's now 20 months. And if you look at looking at um, subgroup analyses, you can see that getting multi-agent chemo had a better survival. Getting falfurinox based regimen was a little bit better. And if they got at least four months of chemotherapy, they tended to do better. Now keep in mind, all these patients got radiation. So there's not a radiation in this group. They all got SBRT prior to surgery so um, or after chemo and if, whether they went surgery or not. And if you look at the mix of patients here, so out of the 117, we actually were able to get 42 that went to, had, were explored. Of the 42, 33 were able to have surgery. And of those, 91% had an R0 resection. Um, and then six got IRE, which is the where you, again, put the probe in, and actually kind of um, uh, cook the rest of it, Um, and then those that did not get surgery, as you can see, the most common reason was for distant metastases. So what we're kind of doing is we're weeding out those who really don't benefit from a local therapy or surgery, and really trying to be more aggressive for those who are surgical candidates. And again, you can see that those who made it to surgery versus no surgery, there was a significant survival advantage, and really it's approaching now, in our most recent data, it's approaching three years for those who actually get to surgery. Skip over that. Um, What's it look like? I mean, the surgeons can tell you more than we can, but you can see that it is very focused. So here's the fibrosis, and you can see us missing. It's, It's very focused around the area that was supposed to be treated and missing the area that's not treated. So the next question is, what are the pathologic outcomes? And I guess the best way to think about this is if we do chemo, do we really need radiation? Whoa, I hit something. Oh, it's okay. It's not what you see. It's what I see. Okay. The screen is a touchable screen, by the way, for those that don't know. Um, so the question is, is, do you really need the radiation here or not? And here's an example, again, of where the tumor shrunk after chemo and radiation. And this patient, I thought, would never go to surgery. Believe it or not, the patient had a margin-negative resection, did end up dying of metastatic disease two years later, but actually did pretty well from a local standpoint. So I, I think this is, so are there any medical oncologists here? Got one in the back. OK, two of you guys. So um, I don't know if you know, if you know um, Andrew Le, um, uh, Andrew um, Coe um, at UCSF. But I kind of love this. He's a friend of mine, so I can kind of say this. But if you look at this paper, okay, it just says here, preoperative fulferinox for borderline resectable disease, is radiation necessary in the modern era of chemotherapy? And I think the point is, I mean, he's showing that there's good results. Don't get me wrong. I mean, our serial resection rate is actually 91% in the 22 patients that they treat with fulferinox alone. And then the radiation. But the thing that's kind of funny is there's only four patients in the radiation group, and he like makes this big statement in the discussion that radiation is not needed anymore and everything else. And I was like, come on, you know. I mean, at least at least give us a fighting chance, you know. And as a statistician, I'm kind of like, come on, you know. But so this is my best approach at this. This is retrospective, um, but it's looking at um, patients who got chemo plus or minus SBRT and then went to surgery. It is a little bit of a mixed bag. There's a couple differences between the groups whoops, like, for example, the duration was definitely shorter in the chemo alone group. Um, But if you look at the margin negative resection rate, and by the way, this is borderline in the light blue, and this is locally advanced, you could see that there was an improvement in margin negative resection by adding five days of radiation. And also, interestingly, in node negativity, you also see an improvement. what about pathologic complete response rate? So this is when we talk about when the surgeon looks at, takes it out and the pathologist slices through it, they say, are there any cells left in that tumor? And interestingly, if we looked at the PATH reports, we had about a 20% PATH CR rate. We had the surgeons, actually Ralph Rubin didn't believe it. So he went back and looked at all of them. And it turns out when he was all said and done, it was like 10%, right? So it just goes to show, I mean, it's hard to get a complete response. Um, but long and short of it, if you look at the, the mixture of what we call near path CR and path CR between the two regimens, you can see that, I mean, we're doing okay. 8% is not bad considering usually 1 or 2% is what you see. And this is central review, um, but zero with chemo. And then you can see near path CR, you also get an improvement with SPRT. So by adding five days of radiation, you know, at least you can argue that it appears you're getting some improvement with the radiation. So the studies that are going to look at this moving forward, this is actually um, Albert Kuhn, who I mentioned, actually just took the job as chair of our department at MD Anderson now. So I get to work with him, ironically enough. Um, But if you look, this is a a multicenter study that he's doing of Fulfurinox plus or minus SBRT in locally advanced disease. And this is open at a number of different studies throughout the country. Um, So that'll really ask the question. And it's a little bit of a higher dose of radiation at 8 gray times 5. So, I really think if we're going to make a difference in this disease, we have to be smarter. And I think we've been treating everybody very similarly. We've got to look at it forward. So, I think the benefit, one of the benefits of going ahead and doing radiation is you put the fiducial in there, you can get a tumor sample, you can sequence it, and perhaps if we end up with a good signature, For surgery, we can decide which patient should or should not be explored. We're not there yet, but I think between that and maybe looking at circulating cells and other things, we'll have a better sense of how we can manage our patients rather than just looking at a CT scan. So I don't know if you guys can read this, but I can't read it here either. Um, (laughs) Let's just start cutting and see what happens. So I mean, this is kind of a joke. You know, our, our surgeons back at Hopkins I actually used this a long time ago because we were getting a number of R2 resections for surgical patients. Not, you know, I said, maybe we should do more neoadjuvant therapy, but now it seems like I'm pushing the other way around and saying, trying to get our surgeons to go in and be more aggressive, even though it's not what we typically would do. So I think it's kind of changing a bit, and in select patients, maybe it does make sense to be a little bit more aggressive. So in summary, you know we, we kind of keep the door open. Um, and again, if patients have no distant metastatic disease, good performance status, stable or improved C-99, and it's been less than 12 weeks since the stereotactic radiation and the chemo, um, these are patients that, that we were exploring. What about borderline resectable disease? So again, this is that group where it's up to 180 degree involvement. And these are the patients that we think we should take the surgery if there's no progression. So this is the trial that you guys have open here. Thankfully, it's a multicenter study. And this is really going to, I think, answer the question of whether a short course of radiation at least provides some benefit. It's not powered for a survival advantage. It's powered more for an R0 resection rate and looking at pathologic response. But it is patients with borderline, they get falfirinox and then go straight to surgery, or they get falfirinox plus a five-day course of radiation and then go to surgery. So this is open here, um, and we thank you for your support. Um, I think it's an important study moving forward. So in conclusion, I think you know the things that we're learning, and again, I stress that, that this is a single institution data. It's emerging. I think there's enough studies that are, there's other sites that are looking at similar paradigms like Harvard and other places. And you guys here are, are very preoperative in neoadjuvant. But uh, I think multi-agent chemotherapy should be given when possible. I, and the data suggests that falfurinox can be better, but also those patients have a better performance status. So it's hard to really make arguments. SBRT does appear to improve pathologic response rates. Um, select patients with locally advanced disease maybe could be resectable. And I, I stress, though, that even, this is important too for the medical oncologists. even with stereotactic radiation, patients are living longer, but these patients that are living three years, I'm seeing local recurrences. So I don't think the dose is still good enough. I think we still have to do better. Um, or the chemo, or we need better maintenance therapies, I think, is the other part that we don't have right now. Um, I always stress that pain, you know, the P's of pancreatic cancer control pain. Don't forget pancreatic enzymes, PanCan, can and multispinary. And you guys have, obviously, your own multispinary uh, pancreas clinic here, too. So in the last couple minutes, I'm just going to go through some of the future directions. And I, I think that, as I discussed earlier, CT in itself is really not good enough. Um, for us to make these decisions, and, and I, I feel bad putting our surgeons in, in a tough situation a lot of times. So some of the things that we can maybe do is look at PET imaging before and after therapy, and you know if they have if they have no avid disease, maybe we leave them alone. If they have avid disease, we go in or, or kind of make decision based on that. I mentioned sequencing, doing uh, you know cell blocks, and also looking at maybe circulating tumor DNA. Um, and the idea is that if they're circulating cells, maybe not take them to surgery, maybe observe them or give them more maintenance chemotherapy. Here's an example of one of the patients I treated um, who had petavidity avidity um, up front and actually had um, no PET avidity after, and it's actually hyper, you can see it's hyperexposed here because you can see it's much brighter here. Um, this patient did end up having a PATH-CR. So I think it's, it's it's a way to kind of help us assess moving forward. And if you look at our trial, actually, we did see a decrease by about 50% in looking different aspects of uh, PET. And then finally, one of my residents actually looked at quantitative PET or PERSIST and found that we could actually come up with a little bit of a signature based on glycolysis activity and other things in PET that actually predicts for pathologic response. So I think that this might help us moving forward. Actually, this is it. I forgot to put this in here. So, um, so again, looking at total lesion glycolysis, it's interesting that if you had a, you know, 25 or less, a past year it was like 83%. If it was greater than 100, it was like 9%. So it's, it's not perfect, but it was something that we can kind of look at. The other one you guys might, anybody here of DPC-4 or SMAD-4? Um, So this is, the idea of this is that when we did the autopsy study, we found that one of the mutations called deleted in pancreas cancer 4 or SMAD-4, um, if it was mutated, those patients tended to have a more metastatic or systemic paradigm of disease of their trajectory. And if it was wild type, they tended to die more of local disease. Um, we've now looked at this and tried to validate it. It's not that easy, unfortunately. I think there's a lot of other features. But again, the idea is if we can kind of understand the, the pathogenesis, we can maybe make better decisions. Um, this is actually some autopsy data, and this is interesting. If you look at a local recurrence, I just want to show you what this looks like up close and personal. So you can see the suture margin. This is, a, this is an autopsy patient, a patient who has died. And you could see that this is what the local recurrence looks like. I mean, I don't know, the surgeons, I mean, you can get a sense. This does not look like an easy thing to go back in. And I think the point here is that whatever we can do to prevent a local recurrence, if we can do it with little, limited morbidity, we should try to do that. Um, The other thing to think about is that um, if we can give hardcore therapy earlier in the neoadjuvant setting, it gives these cancer cells less time to mutate. And again, because of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that we're understanding that there's what we call these trunk or founder mutations. So when the tumor is developing, it's developing these specific mutations. But then as they metastasize, they develop these subclones that are very different and actually tend to be much more resistant to the therapies that we gave previously. So for example, if you gave falfurinoxin and radiation up front and surgery and it recurs, the data is suggesting that when it's in the liver or the lung, they're completely different subclones with different mutation profiles. So that's why this cancer is going to be tough to, to really cure. We have to really. Uh, We have a lot of work ahead of us. And this is very complicated. And Chris Ekebuzio can explain it better than I can. But just to show you sort of this idea of the branching and how they they mutate and they change. And it, it can create either a liver met if it's one profile. And this is like a happier you know, clone in the liver. And this is a happier clone in the local tumor environment. So maybe eventually, we can get a better understanding of how to attack one versus the other if they recur. Um, This is an example of using PET and circulating tumor DNA. So the idea here is that you see the PET, and you can see that there's a high-level circulating tumor DNA, and now you can see the correlation. This is Macus Dean's work. This is actually lung, but you can get the same idea, perhaps, for pancreas, that you can follow the patient and use a combination of the two to make some treatment decisions. Let's get through that. The last part is, um, I'm just going to kind of go right to... You know, is what can we learn from animal studies and working together? So, you know, there's a lot of interest in looking at, you know, I guess mentioned this morning, you guys are actually doing um, uh, 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 implanted, taking tumors and looking at it in mouse models, et cetera. Um, So, the idea is can we kind of recreate and do little mini mouse experiments with radiation? So, we now are able to do pancreas, SBRT, put a little fiducial in the mouse, um, you, you give stereotactic focused radiation. And so, this provided a platform that allowed us to look at, this is actually with Rich Tooley, who was a resident of mine at Hopkins, and we looked at PARP inhibition, and looked at just giving stereotactic radiation with or without PARP, and the activity looked pretty good. Um, He then reached out and asked for some support um, to do this trial, which was a single institution study at Cedar Sinai, and it was a pretty straightforward study of looking at, um, uh, patients got upfront chemotherapy, um, and then they got three weeks of radiation with a PARP inhibitor. Um, and just to kind of show you, um, he's getting ready to publish this now. Um, and it, it does show some interesting, the, the toxicity was a little higher than what you see with stereotactic radiation because it was given over three weeks with gemcitabine. Um, but I think the interesting thing here is that we talk, the oncologists talk a lot about brackenness or BRCA. And, you know, it's looking at tumor DNA repair. And the idea is if there are um, errors in DNA repair, perhaps these are the patients that are going to respond better to platinum agents. And or radiation, and for this matter, PARP inhibitors, and and you know again, you could see that if they have a specific mutation profile um, with, within the homologous recombination pathway, the base excision pathway, um, the mismatch repair pathway, or the Fanconi pathway, you can see that these patients actually survived longer and had better responses than their counterparts. So I think moving forward using combinations of, of you know, um, uh, PARP inhibitors, radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy. This is really how we're gonna hopefully, and, and selecting patients based on their profiles can take us to the next level. Um, all right, so the very last part is just the, 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 from a vaccine perspective, I don't know, this slide didn't come out very good, but. One of the things is that there's a couple of vaccines that are out there, and this is called a GVAX vaccine, which was um, at, at Hopkins. And long and short of it is it was derived from two patients that had a whipple surgery. Um, it was, um, the, the tumor itself was uh, uh, perpetuated. Um, and, um, and the idea is you take these cancer cells that have been irradiated, you add GMCSF, and it allows a, sort of a hyperregulation or hyper um, uh, um, stimulation of the immune system. Well, by itself, the idea is, you know, can you give radiation to enhance what's called an abscopal effect? So the idea is that you radiate the tumor, it releases these antigens, and then ideally, if you can give something to further stimulate the immune response, these tumor-specific T cells can then go out and attack systemic disease. Well, with radiation by itself, it doesn't work very well, but if we can add a vaccine and also a checkpoint inhibitor, uh, Where'd my checkpoint inhibitor slide go? Oh, it's gone. Okay. Um, well, anyway, if you add a checkpoint inhibitor, the idea is hopefully you can do better. But in this study, we actually just looked at stereotactic radiation, GVAX. So the idea of this was that in patients who have a high risk of recurrence after surgery, we would give the vaccine, give five days of stereotactic radiation to the tumor bed, and then give falfiranox for 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 six months, and then keep them on GVAX um, as well as um, Uh, the GVAX as a maintenance therapy. And the field of radiation was much more focused and as discussed this morning a little bit. um, The idea is most of these tumors recur right around the celiac and the SMA. So we radiate just that region um, so that the toxicity would be less and it can be delivered over a five-day period. Um, The first group just got stereotactic and Fulfirinox. The second group actually got modified Fulfirinox because this was was too toxic. And then finally, the third group got Psi, GVAX, Cytoxin just helps the vaccine work better, um, and then SBRT, and I've got to get to the punchline here. Oh, actually, this is important, real quick. Um, so look at this. So if we look at the, the, this is 95% poor or moderately differentiated, 80% positive margins, and 80% positive nodes. So this is like the worst of the worst patients to put on a trial. Um, despite this, the survival has actually been pretty good. And I give a lot of credit to the fulfurinox to be honest. I mean, but I think the idea is if you can get a short course of radiation to take care of a local situation, they can then get through six months of Fulfirinox without any problem. Oh, there it is. That's a slide. Um, So in the unresectable setting at Hopkins, this is the current trial building on everything we've talked about, which is they get enrolled, they get chemotherapy, they get a core biopsy, Then they get five days of stereotactic radiation with vaccine and with an anti-PD-1 inhibitor. If they're not resectable, they get a core biopsy um, to be evaluated for response. If they're resectable, they go to surgery, and then they stay on maintenance. So I think this is kind of a, again, it's a step in the right direction, I think, to hopefully take care of both the local and the systemic issue. And because of time, I'm going to skip over this last part. There's there's also an idea of, of radiation protection. And the idea is you can give drugs that will help protect the bowel as you give stereotactic radiation, which will allow us to potentially give a higher dose without hurting the bowel. And so we're doing a dose escalation trial at MD Anderson with a drug that hopefully will help with that. Um, and the idea is here you could see, this is one study looking at one of giving 15, um, giving up to 75 gray, you could see that um, there was survival of an animal by giving the drug in high doses of radiation, which typically you wouldn't see. So in summary, Um, I think there's a lot of things to still be done, Um, a lot of projects for residents and others. And I think that hopefully you guys are close to getting the resident program here. Um, So for locally advanced disease, there's a lot of questions. What dose of radiation is needed? Do we have to treat the whole area? Um, What patients should have surgery? What adjuvant therapy should be given? How long can we give maintenance therapy? And really kind of the same questions for borderline, except for does pathology response correlate with outcome? How long should we wait after radiation to take patients to surgery? Typically, it's anywhere from four to 12 weeks right now, but we don't really know. And then, you know, do we need to cover the lymph nodes or not? Um, help wise I mean, obviously, Dan, it takes a team. So I was able to work with a ton of amazing people to do this. Um, I do miss a lot of them dearly, but you know, you, you take opportunities and you go to the next situation. Um, and um, others that helped out with the different project or provided some slides. So with that, hopefully we have a little bit of time for some discussion. Sorry, I went a little bit over. But um, I appreciate your attention, especially after lunch. Thank you.
0: I have a question. When you look at the, going back to those last slides on immunotherapy, it makes a lot of sense. I like the scopal uh, effect and then the idea that you to expose tumor agents in the context of radiation. Or SBRT, I guess, in this case. You, even before you do that, like in your own even in your, I saw some of the slides this morning, like in your older data session at like, like past CR response. Do you see differences in tilt pre or post <clears throat> that's different from external
2: beam or IMRT? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we're doing that right now. So of the hundred and s- 80 or so patients that have gone to surgery after SBRT. We do have a little bit of a mixed bag of of patients who went like three weeks after surgery and some that went 12 weeks after surgery. So um, the early answer is um, yes, there's some differences. But we don't have, I I don't have enough data right now. But there are some differences we're seeing with respect to both the clonal, like so looking at T cells um, and also looking at Tregs. So Tregs, the regulatory cells, there does appear to be some differences. Um, Clearly, there are more macrophages, um, and some of them are not the good ones, so that's sort of the trade-off. So the idea is maybe, again, giving some drugs that might assist with you know sort of modulating the tumor microenvironment to be most beneficial. The other theory is that maybe um, uh, Sylvia Fermenti, who has done a lot of radiation work, um, and Bob Vonderheide at Penn, there's a lot of discussion of maybe we're going too high. So if you're going for an immune Response maybe a single fraction of 15 gray is really what you need. If you're going for more of a pathologic response, then you're going with higher doses. So I think it comes down to like if we're gonna really, if you think about it, we we're talking about this this morning. The real role of immunotherapy is probably the oligometastatic disease. So if you can give you know chemo, SBRT to a couple of lesions like we're doing in lung right now, and then adding you know um, checkpoint inhibitors, etc., maybe giving a, like a single fraction to those lesions might be more beneficial. But I think that's also why we're doing the other trial. We're trying to get a sense of, of what it is. And even for those that don't go to surgery, by getting a core, we're, we're going to be able to look at the tumor microenvironment for all patients. It's not perfect, but it's kind of the best we can do.
3: Yes. Um, such a great, great overview of really interesting work that you're doing. Um, I'm wondering whether the <clears throat> SBRD is a little too precise um, in terms of, well, you know, yeah, like we were talking this morning, um, you know, we have some data that Giving and it was mainly, I guess, 3D, really, radiation therapy, maybe a little IMRT, led to results where we saw that there was a fairly low local recurrence rate if you gave it the the radiation therapy before surgery. And um, so as a surgeon, I think, well, all right, the radiation therapy is just helping me out a little bit because it's kind of getting a little further out than where I'm removing, you know. And so this was going through my mind as you're presenting this, is if you're really being so precise with the radiation, I get it, that it, it doesn't injure the the duodenum as much and stuff, but <clears throat> I'm wondering whether it's a little too tight, you know, and that you're not getting some of those lymph nodes that might be a little further away, or just that, you know, we can't see on the CT scan that the tumor cells actually do, um, you know, sort of grow a little further away from the tumor, and that if, um, uh, so anyway, so that's what I'm, I don't know, do you have thoughts about yeah, that?
2: Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I think. Um, One thing that kind of made me feel a little bit better about being tight is if you look at, I don't have the slide I told you about, but we looked at patterns of failure in about 200 patients or 170 patients or so. Most of the failures did occur along the SMA and the celiac. So I think that makes us at least feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, I think the other thing is because with more aggressive chemo, we are relying a little bit more on the chemo to help sterilize it. But the, the other point about this is that there are definitely areas where we can expand the dose, um, especially posteriorly, which is back along those, like sort of where the nodes can live. And I really wanted to do that on a trial, but my concern again is that the bigger the volume we make, the bigger the risk of maybe causing toxicity. And even in borderline studies, if you look across the board, only about 65% of those patients actually make it to surgery. So my concern is that even in the borderline setting, 35% 35% of patients are never, never going to go to surgery. And if chemo is doing a good job, I don't want to hurt those patients. Now, I would say in the neoadjuvant setting, specifically, I think we should definitely expand it. I think it makes sense. You try to cover the nodal volume. Um, and I actually would argue in the locally advanced setting, if we can definitely do it safer, treat more post, you know, treat again a wider net per se. Um, and, and in my own practice, I do treat a bigger area, what I, I call the fly zone, you know, where you can go, and I stay away from the no-fly zone, which is anteriorly. But it's just that conceptually, in, in a trial setting, you know, I, I really just believe in first do no harm, and I, I figure the smaller, the better, and, and just at least to kind of, sh- you know, to get us off the ground. Um, but but it's a very good point, and actually, I've wrestled with this a lot, and I've talked to a number of the investigators about this, and. We kind of landed on the fact that this is the first time a lot of people have ever done stereotactic, so it's probably better to be on the, you know, to be more careful. Because I worry that if we if we hurt a lot of people, our oncologists are going to not support <laughs> this this agenda. So
3: there now, local recurrence rates after say 3D formal IMRT or SBRT. No,
2: it's needed though. Um, I have it for SBRT, and I can show you. There are a couple marginal recurrences, but not a lot. Um, so it's it's, but it's something that I think we need to look at. Actually, will not we let... Oh,
1: sure.
2: That's
3: almost
0: the same question, Joe. Thank you so much for the presentation. Almost the same question Dr. Bach posed, which is, uh, for borderline, at least they're going to go for surgery. But for locally advanced pancreatic cancer, if
2: we see positive nodes on the CT, is that... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you see a positive node, and um, generally, if, it's, if there's a node that's... I usually will get a pet to help me, if I can, through the insurance company. If it, looks, if it looks suspicious, I'm going to usually reach out and get it. Um, but if there's bowel there and you can't get to it, I'll treat standard radiation with those patients. Okay. So I still cover. If there's, if there's any nodal involvement, I'll either cover it with SBRT or I'll treat with standard. A visual. There's not usually a lot though after fulphirinox. It's not that common that you'll see big juicy nodes afterwards, but sometimes you do. Yeah, I have
1: another question. after yeah. so, I would think a little bit more about dose escalation, especially in the an unreceptable setting, and this is a question kind of also for Karen and, and Ray. Um, you know, if, if we say to ourselves, I think we talked about this yesterday, if we say, you know what, the duodenum is going to receive a lethal dose, and let's just forget about the duodenum, because there are duodenethamines that you can do in patients. Um, is, is there a thought to, let's say, again, if we have, someone's gotten six months of chemotherapy, they've created a disease, um, we give an the bladed dose of radiation, knowing that, you know, there is, clearly an unreceptable tumor at the artery. But can we just not worry about the duodenum by a, essentially removing the duodenum and taking that out of the picture and then doing some sort of transition at the CBD and the pancreatic duct? Uh, didn't work. So doing a
2: mipple, huh? <laughs> as discussed this morning, doing, doing a mipple, per se, after, uh, after radiation.
3: I guess it has to do with timing then. So we'd operate like within a week or something before it had time for the toxicity of the radiation therapy on the right. beginning it's of that. Not even a few weeks. I think even these late toxicities. Yeah, rather than, than waiting weeks. eight weeks or something. Yeah, I mean, sure. Right, and that's not an unreasonable thought.
2: I think that's the idea behind like for the locally advanced. You do the chemo. You do the SBRT and then you go in if you can't get it out you do IRE and at that point you could potentially do that do that procedure my only problem is that 80% of the people um that I treated at Hopkins were not from Maryland or the region so I did have one person bleed out that lived literally in the middle of nowhere and there was there was no help there was no surgeon to go operate you guys have more of a, a little bit more of a regional group but um, at Hopkins, like I, I really, um, you know, it's one is too many. I mean, you know, if you have one person that has a toxicity, we all do. I mean, I would say probably with Fulfirinox, you guys see it too. I mean, we hurt people sometimes and we don't want to, but it's just, it's sort of like to get some benefit. But that's why, again, I, I think I, I err on the side of being a little bit more careful. And especially there's people that are going to be enrolling on this trial from Alaska and other small places. And who knows where they actually, they might live in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. So I, I think it, it's definitely something I think we should look into. But again, Selection I think is going to be very key for that.
1: Um, right, right. You definitely absolutely do a doomadectomy
2: for it. And I think if you're gonna definitely take him to surgery, that's a whole other discussion. Sorry.
1: Yeah,
0: I think it's said patient select for a huge patient selection for everything
3: that's like lot of morbidity, so that would benefit. But I had a separate question, which is how do you
0: deal with um alterations in the growth tumor volume after chemotherapy with respect to treatment? Coverage. Do you do you treat only the person in? I mean, If there is treated, do you try and increase your field to cover the initial extent of disease? Um, similarly, with low no volumes, you say, well, after you're not so much in the way of FGG avid disease, but do you worry about micro metastatic disease or in sort of um, small volume disease uh, that is better than all the
2: yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, wish, I wish the response rate was better with what we have, right? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, at best maybe 20%. Um, so I'm not, we don't have that problem very often. But I, again, I, I, I pretty much will stick to what we see at the end of the therapy. Um, and when I can be generous to cover the nodal volume, and especially if I'm, you know, if I'm doing it, I've been, you know, I know what I'm getting, I'll, because I'll, I've done it a while, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and expand the volume out to try to reach out and, and cover a bigger area. Especially if I know they're going to go to surgery, I'm a little more generous. And also I'll push the dose at that tumor vessel interface and try to go higher. Um, but I think, again, this is where we really need better imaging. We need functional imaging, whether it be like flt PET or other PET or other functional studies that will help us better. And I think better, better understanding of systemic, low, systemic involvement, which right now there's not anything great. But, again, better selection.